0: Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital Kabul today, culmination of a rapid advance and retaking of control almost exactly two decades after they were ousted from power. Fighters were filmed inside the presidential palace after Ashraf Ghani, now the former president, fled the country. Afghans and foreign nationals have been trying to get on planes at Kabul airport where international troops have been involved in evacuations, but security there is reported to be fragile. The latest developments came after the Taliban moved through one Afghan province after another in recent years days and headed towards the capital.
1: The entire situation is a bit surreal. It's a sinking feeling that I don't know how to quite describe other than it being overwhelming, it's upsetting, it's angering. And I think that's the sentiments for a lot of folks. You're watching your country fall apart in real time. For my parents, I think especially, who have a much deeper connection to Afghanistan. I mean, they were born and raised there. I'm a byproduct, a child of refugees born in the United States. You know, watching them see it happen in real time too was absolutely disheartening. Heartbreaking. We're still trying to verify how these people have died. There was chaos in in the last about
0: twenty four hours of people trying to get on planes, trying to get out. They essentially overwhelmed the airport security. Thousands of people flooding onto the tarmac, clamoring
1: to try to get onto planes. There are stories of of people just pushing past and sitting on a plane
2: and waiting for a pilot to show up to fly them out.
1: It's hard to really wrap my head around sometimes, too, because as a, as a student of history, you know, I love history as an Afghan American, you know, I read a lot about Afghanistan, right? And I've read a lot about, you know, what happened in 1996 and 97 when the Taliban took over the country last time around, and, you know, hearing firsthand accounts from family members that had to live through it back then. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would see it happen in real time as an adult and I would actually be trying to help family members leave the country and, and coordinating efforts on the United States front in terms of you know, getting the right people on planes and sending lists out and stuff like that. And so all of it has been just very surreal, especially as a, as a U.S. citizen. This is the country that I was born in. This is essentially my country. I don't know any other country. I, I've never been able to set foot in Afghanistan because of the country that I was born in meddling in my
3: ancestral homeland. I am brother Cornell West.
4: This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente.
3: Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy property rage. And this is
4: Newsbeat. Hundreds of thousands killed. Millions displaced. Trillions spent. 20 long years of anguish, destruction, lies, and ever-shifting justifications. And in the end, the very same regime the US-led war in Afghanistan was purportedly waged to topple simply strolled right back into power. Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast. Now, as the media and world shifts its attention away from America's longest-failed undeclared war, in this episode, we delve into its origins Ever shifting justifications and objectives, and everlasting legacy. With assistant professor of history, Middle East, Islamic, and global South history at Penn State, Dr. Ali Olomi, second generation Afghan American, tech professional, community organizer, co founder of nonprofit Afghans for a Better Tomorrow, among others, Halima Wali, who you heard at the top, and independent journalist, author, and filmmaker, Anthony Lowenstein you also hear from Newsbeat's artists in residents, the prolific hip-hop recording artist, Silent Night. Now, just a quick reminder. Subscribe to our newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for new episode drops and bonus content and more about each episode. It's free. Once again, newsbeat.substack.com. All right, let's get into it, y'all. This is Grifter's Paradise. Capitalism's Destruction of Afghanistan.
5: To really understand Afghanistan, we have to first situate it as what I call a semi-colonized country. That means from its very inception as a nation, uh, Afghanistan was caught between massive imperial powers.
3: Over a hundred years since its independence from Great Britain, ongoing wars have made Afghanistan one of the world's most conflict-ridden nations. The strategic geographic location of the country has made it a battleground for dominance between great powers and foreign influence throughout its history.
5: Going to the 19th century, at the very birth of Afghanistan, it's caught between the great game of Great Britain and Russia. It's seen as the gateway to South and Central Asia, particularly India. There was a fear that whoever gained a foothold in Afghanistan would therefore control the movement of trade and imperial influence in the broader region. So Afghanistan, being between Iran and India, was central for the pursuits of both Great Britain and Russia.
3: During the 19th century, the British and Russian empires were locked in a battle of influence in South and Central Asia known as the Great Game. Britain, looking to protect its Indian Empire, wanted to keep Afghanistan away from Russia, and these attempts to control Afghanistan resulted in a series of British-Afghan wars.
5: So it was invaded multiple times by Great Britain it was interfered with multiple times by great imperial powers uh, hoping to establish some form of friendly government and they found quite early on that their results would be mixed that they could conquer afghanistan for short periods of time but then afghanistan would rebel emirs would switch sides elites who were originally willing to work with colonial powers would quickly
6: shift afghanistan A war which cost the lives of nearly 15,000 young Soviet conscripts and an estimated 1
0: million Afghans. It was the Soviet Union's Vietnam syndrome, so to speak. It was impossible for a great superpower to run away from this wild country.
7: The US government's initial reaction was, was very swift. We were going to give it everything we had one last push.
5: A huge covert action program to help drive the Soviets out. The Afghan resistance now receives support from the United States, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and scores of Islamic
6: volunteers.
5: As a result of the Cold War, Afghanistan will once more come into the competing forces this time with the soviet union and the united states it will start in the early 50s through a series of infrastructure projects massive amounts of money will be dedicated to building up roads and tunnels and agriculture in afghanistan so afghanistan was flush with foreign cash which led to a endemic corruption a real ongoing problem in which the main employer of the country was the government. And that government was reliant entirely on foreign aid. This corruption will lead to two different ideological visions that will emerge from Kabul University. One is a Marxist-Leninist vision of Afghanistan, one in which the economy would be designed to serve the working class. The working class that is being screwed over by this economic situation in kabul while at the same time you have this agrarian rural society that has no benefit from the infrastructure projects of the united states and the soviet union so the marxist leninists are imagining not just a revolution but imagining a whole scale revisioning of what afghanistan's economy and government would look like The other competing vision is the Islamist faction, which will emerge from Kabul University. These two factions will end up really deciding the fate of Afghanistan for the next several decades, and both the Soviet Union and the United States will end up allying themselves with one of these different groups. Once the Soviet Union invades, The United States will ally itself with the most regressive elements of the Mujahideen. So the Mujahideen are a coalition force. They're made up of ordinary Afghans who take up the gun and say, look, our country's been invaded. We're going to fight against it. But they have more organized elements, and those organized elements are led by the people like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, this guy who murdered a activist, who carried out acid attacks, who literally had to flee to Pakistan and live in exile, would become the chief benefactor of the United States vis-à-vis Pakistan's intelligence services. At the same time, the United States will ally itself with the Haqqani family, a group that will eventually become the Haqqani Network, literally one of the most notorious terrorist elements of the Taliban. So we will see that the United States will fund and support these more regressive elements because they're more organized and because ideologically they're more openly opposed to communism.
3: But to understand the reality of Afghanistan today, it's important to grasp the historical context surrounding its independence and key moments in its modern history that gave it the name, the Graveyard of Empires. The British fought Afghanistan in a series of wars in the 19th century, in attempts to control the country and block the expansion of Russia's sphere of influence towards India. Their incursions set a precedent for the Soviet and American invasions that followed.
5: I would argue that there hasn't been a moment in Afghanistan's history where a great power wasn't involved in some way, shape, or form, whether that's infrastructure building, supporting various factions, propping up the government, or even applying some type of diplomatic pressure in Afghanistan. And the Taliban emerge out of this moment of chaos in the 90s. At the same time, they've received these textbooks that were designed by the United States in order to teach children how to carry out jihad. So I've placed some of these uh, textbooks on Twitter and, and whatnot for people who are interested in checking them out. They're basically designed by the State Department and the University of Nebraska to ostensibly teach children how to read and write, the ABCs. But the images that are used are all weapons. So people are le- little children are learning how to read and write through bullets, bombs, and guns. Uh, The desire being to radicalize these children. In fact, the stated objective is to introduce a patriotic desire to defend the home country. They're learning to read with phrases that say stuff like this is a sword. My uncle uses a sword to carry out a jihad. This is a gun. My uncle uses this gun to kill the communists. So it's the Taliban who will grow up with this language. The Mujahideen don't. The Mujahideen don't fight that way. The taliban do and the taliban are raised that way now the particular irony here is whatever the united states intended that will end up working against them the taliban still use those textbooks they've just crossed out where it says uh soviet and they've written american isis in afghanistan uses those textbooks now people who have been in afghanistan i've seen them myself those textbooks firsthand and they're used in these various training camps
0: this just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Good
7: Center. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil despicable acts of terror these acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat but they have failed our country is strong a great people has been moved to defend a great nation America strikes back Afghanistan is pounded with bombs and missiles from the air and sea
4: The first wave, 50 Tomahawk cruise missiles, like these, fired from U.S. and British ships and submarines. 25 warplanes off the aircraft carriers Carl Vinson and Enterprise launched strikes from the Indian Ocean.
7: We last met in an hour of shock and suffering. In four short months, our nation has comforted the victims, begun to rebuild New York and the Pentagon, rallied a great coalition, captured, arrested, and rid the world of thousands of terrorists, destroyed Afghanistan's terrorist training camps, saved the people from starvation, and freed a country from brutal oppression.
5: Once the United States started bombing uh, Afghanistan, the Taliban offered to turn Osama bin Laden over. They said, look, we are not allied with this guy he's we've had some tensions with him we've hosted him he's been our guest but we will turn him over and you can place him on trial and i think that would be a fair solution this was the taliban's response to a bombing campaign and the united states at the time said no that's not good enough we need more than that and so a new justification was given and that was that we need to go into afghanistan and destroy any capabilities for supporting terrorism in the future.
7: even my heart, I know the man's on the run, if he's alive at all. And uh, I, I uh, you know, I, who knows if he's hiding in some cave or not? Uh, we hadn't heard from him in a long time. And the idea of focusing on one person uh, is um, really uh, indicates to me people don't understand the scope of the mission. Uh, Terror is bigger than one person.
5: But Afghanistan fell within a short period of time and once it fell there needed to be a new objective And so the new objective that was kind of retroactively added on is that we need to nation-build We need to establish a new government that will be pro-liberty, pro-United States, and will never become a safe haven for terrorists ever
6: again.
1: the President of the Transitional Islamic State of Afghanistan
6: I thank you and the people of this great country for your generosity and commitment to our people you have supported us with your resources with your leadership in the world community and most importantly with the precious lives of your soldiers
5: and hear the language of Western feminism in particular played a very important role. Without a doubt, the Taliban were horrific, abusers of human rights and and oppressed women.
2: Even as bombs continue to rain down on Afghanistan, for the Afghan people, this is the latest chapter in 23 years of war. The Afghan men and boys have fought and died in those wars, so women became the pillars of Afghan society. It's doctors, lawyers, professors, judges. But all that changed five years ago when the Taliban took power and took away women's rights.
1: Good morning. I'm Laura Bush, and I'm delivering this week's radio address to kick off a worldwide effort to focus on the brutality against women and children by the Al Qaeda terrorist network and the regime it supports in Afghanistan, the Taliban. That regime is now in retreat across much of the country, and the people of Afghanistan, especially women, are rejoicing. Afghan women know through hard experience what the rest of the world is discovering, the brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorist.
5: But it was quite fascinating to see that suddenly the plight of of Afghan women, which were the same a decade earlier, suddenly became keenly part of American discourse. Women were in burqas, women needed to be liberated from scary brown men. uh, And so the language of liberating women and Developing some type of progress around that became the third retroactive justification for going into Afghanistan, or at this point, staying in Afghanistan and building some type of government. And while it is certainly true that over the past 20 years, we have seen wonderful progress in terms of women's rights, and we have seen progress of women entering into a variety of segments of of Afghan society, That language is often missing when we talk about things like the consequence of drone warfare in Afghanistan. Women's rights suddenly takes a back seat when we're talking about droning villages. Afghan women have no rights when they're being droned. There's been a whitewashing that has been happening and the earlier justifications have almost entirely been forgotten. You can never even imagine
8: it, but you wouldn't even want to try. To see clear blue skies And be traumatized To know that cloudy days Mean less flybys To know the last sunny day Was when your father died And the last sunny day Was when your mother died And the one before that Was when your uncle died And the one before that Was when your cousin died And you hated somehow You're just a f***ing child Right around the time Your first textbook arrived Shipped from the US of A., Where it was designed Taught you to read and write And even to take up arms Same time I was taught Child soldiers wanna do me on. Right around the time it changed the meaning of jihad. A long time before we really seen through the fog. A day before they bombed your uncle's farm. For they started claiming that they care about the rights of those the ones they wronged.
0: The Taliban
1: fell within months. The U.S. along with its allies turned to nation building with big promises of lessons learned.
7: We know this from not only intelligence but from the history of military conflict in Afghanistan. It's been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake.
1: Critics say that's exactly what happened as the U.S. turned more attention to the war in Iraq. The U.S. announced an end to major combat operations in Afghanistan in 2003. A constitution was written, elections followed, a new president, a new legislature, with women taking positions of power. But as the years passed, cracks in the coalition. The war has been, uh, it depends who you ask in the Afghan diaspora, it depends who you ask within Afghanistan. There are folks that really benefited from the war and walked away with you know, their pockets full and really made off well from the war, both inside of Afghanistan and of course in the U.S. as well with various military contractors and stuff like that. When it comes to the actual people, I think it's a hard question sometimes to answer. And I say this in the context of Afghanistan itself, because the 20 years of Taliban-free Afghanistan really allowed different sectors to flourish. So journalism, uh, the music industry, the film industry, fashion, and, and these types of industries that Historically, of course, the Taliban just completely denied or um, you know disallowed any type of participation in. And so you had folks, especially young folks that hadn't necessarily seen the Taliban the first time around, thrive in these 20 years. The United States essentially sold to them a vision of equality, a vision of a brighter future. And the young folks in Afghanistan and especially in the, in the major cities, ate that up. They believed that. And so you had women that were journalists and and folks that were in medical school, people that were thriving in in broadcast journalism. We had our uh, our first, I would say, 24-hour news cable network and and many others followed suit. And so you had an Afghanistan that was basically two sides of of the coin in one same war. You had the side where it allowed for thriving of all these different sectors, for young folks to um, you know, learn new skills, become developers, journalists, things like that. But in the other side of the same coin of war, there was rampant corruption that ended up happening at the hands of the U.S. Thousands and thousands of people died because of the war.
5: After the Taliban regime was toppled, the public assumed that the wars had ended and innocent people
8: would not be harmed and killed anymore.
5: But those hopes didn't last long, as insurgent and coalition attacks resulted in civilian deaths. Four years ago, the United Nations assistance mission to Afghanistan started keeping track of the casualties. Each year, the civilian death toll has risen from more than 1,500 dead in 2007 to more than 2,700 dead in 2010.
1: And essentially, it led us back to the same place prior to the war with the Taliban in control. So I think a lot of folks within Afghanistan feel betrayed. The fact that 20 years of various spending, um, various dreams that were promised, uh, essentially collapsed in a matter of weeks. And so people feel very betrayed.
4: We're going to get the latest now in Afghanistan, where the Taliban took control of three key cities on Sunday as American troops withdraw.
0: This devastating blow to the Afghan government comes just three weeks before the U.S. is set to end its combat mission in the country. Is the Taliban
7: takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Why? Because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world and an air force against something like seventy five thousand
5: taliban the Kabul airport is the only safe way out of Afghanistan and today there was nearly a run on it afghans who could get visas rushed to foreign countries for the United States the airport is the staging ground to evacuate U.S. embassy personnel helicopters and airplanes circled over Kabul shuttling between the embassy where sensitive documents were burned and the airport as the Taliban closed in. The militants had already taken every city except Kabul, mostly without fighting. U.S. trained and equipped Afghan soldiers just melted away.
3: Carrying U.S. rifles and driving Humvees, just some of the billions of dollars' worth of equipment left behind when the Taliban claimed victory and declared Afghanistan a free and sovereign nation.
0: Despite American presidents and military leaders providing years of positive assessments that the U.S. was winning the war in Afghanistan, Behind the scenes, there were clear warnings that things were headed in another direction. The whole debate and congressional Congress now saying they're going to look at this exit strategy obscures what the U.S. did in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. And that's what you so deeply look at in the Afghanistan papers. First, describe what they are.
6: Uh, These were documents that. Uh, were not made public until the Washington Post had to sue the government to obtain them under the Freedom of Information Act. What they show is, as you stated earlier, the public narrative was that the U.S. was always making progress. All these presidents said we were going to win the war. And yet in private, these officials were were extremely pessimistic. Uh, They said they didn't have a campaign plan. They didn't have a strategy. They didn't understand Afghanistan and thought the war was unwinnable.
1: I think it became increasingly clear as I read through it that the United States really didn't care about necessarily winning anymore. I think the war in itself really had no clear goals from the onset. There's this one famous video of, of George W. Bush sort of saying like, hey, we need to get Osama bin Laden and that's our goal.
7: Osama bin Laden is just one person. He, he, he is representative of, uh, of networks of people. Who are who absolutely have made the, their, their cause to defeat the freedoms that we, we take that, that we understand and we will not allow them to do so do you want bin Laden dead? I want him hel- I want I want justice and uh, uh, there's an old poster out west as I recall that said wanted dead or alive.
1: But what happened you know after Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan you know that wasn't really addressed. And then beyond that, I think the papers just, you know, reminded, I think, Afghan people how much the United States just didn't care. And that was shown through the horrific killings that the U.S. military would do of villages, of children, the level of money that was pumped into the country that really had no oversight whatsoever. If I recall correctly, there's even a U.S. official saying, like, we were used to give money to the bad guys so that we could get the badder guys. And then our hope was that eventually we would come back around and get the bad guy that we gave the initial money to. But that never happened. And so, I think the level and magnanimity of just complete and utter disregard for the entirety of the war, and we're talking about trillions of dollars that was spent on this, I think every American should be up in arms and upset and angry and demanding answers for this
6: the population of afghanistan saw the united states as allying itself with warlords who had who had pretty brutal records during the 1990s and certainly a, a long and deep history of corruption and here was the united states partnering with them uh and frankly spending billions of dollars on the afghan government which went into the warlords pockets uh, so the population didn't see the United States as bringing democracy and equal rights to Afghanistan. They saw them as propping up uh, a corrupt and illegitimate government. You know, the Taliban certainly has a, a very brutal record. I don't mean to minimize that in any regard, particularly how they treat women and girls. But in the end, many Afghans, particularly in rural areas, uh, said, look, we don't like the Taliban, but we really hate our own government. You know, at least the Taliban, we see them as Afghans. Uh, they're, they're more sympathetic to our religious beliefs. And, you know, they're not here to help with the foreigners. So I think in the end, a lot of people saw the Taliban as the lesser of two evils.
1: Unfortunately, though, Afghan lives are cheap. Afghan lives don't really matter to folks inside of the United States. They're, it's a far distant land. Afghan people are only valuable when it's Afghan women, when it's for a cause. Shout out to Laura Bush. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't necessarily resonate with people that, hey, these are, you know, actual people. They're, you know, it has a, a thriving culture of food and music and all of this stuff. It doesn't matter. A
7: year ago yesterday, on November 6, 2012, tens of millions of Americans went to the polls to reelect President Obama. On that same day, thousands of miles away, a 39-year-old Afghan farmer named Mohammed Qasim disappeared after being arrested by U.S. Special Forces. He was never heard from again. Months later, an Afghan shepherd saw a feral dog digging at human remains now believed to be the farmers. His decaying body was found just outside a base used by a team of U.S. special forces known as the A-Team. The body was found just weeks after U.S. special forces were compelled by the Afghan government to leave the base amid allegations of torture and murder.
5: The Afghanistan papers were in many ways a, a confirmation for what activists had been warning about for years. Anti-war activists, activists in Afghanistan, they've been saying, look, there's something seriously, the rhetoric is not matching up to what's actually happening. And the Afghanistan papers revealed that it was all a grift. It was a grift all along. That the language in the public was one of progress, of things improving, and certainly there were areas of improvement. For urban areas like Kabul and Herat and Mazar-e-Sharif, there were certain benefits that they they received right we saw starbucks is opening up and mcdonald's opening up and supposed access more access for women in a variety of different sectors but at the same time there was this language of progress the actual on the ground reality was that one the war against the taliban was not as successful as the united states was claiming the taliban were able to continue to kind of grow in these of these different arenas that two, that quote unquote progress was only limited to those urban areas. The rural areas were basically shit out of luck. They were being bombed by the Taliban and bombed by drones. So they're caught in between two forces, just utterly decimating the whole family populations. You talk to anyone from a rural background and everyone has at least a dozen members who have died in their family. And that's a conservative estimate, a dozen. Simultaneously to all this going on, we also found out that the United States was funneling billions of dollars, somewhere upwards of one to two trillion dollars into the project of Afghanistan.
6: In the height of spending during the war was during the Obama administration, when he sent a surge of 100,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. That's when we were spending just enormous amounts of money in Afghanistan, not just to wage the war, but to try and build up the country. And frankly, the Afghanistan paper it was far more money than the country could possibly hope to absorb. It just didn't have the capacity to use all this money. So a lot of the money was also siphoned off by corruption, by Afghan warlords, by defense contractors, And by defense contractors, that could be anything from major American contractors who were profiting off the war to local contractors in Afghanistan, international ones that supplied supplies, ammunition, food, transport. I mean, the war was a very expensive war to wage in a landlocked country halfway around the world.
5: The problem was that none of that money was making it into the various projects that it was claiming. So no schools were being opened, wasn't going to any of these kind of aid groups. Where was that money going? The Afghanistan papers reveal that all of that money was going mostly back into the hands of private US military contractors, advisors, contractors, some NGOs. This was basically a capitalist grift. Who were the beneficiaries of the 20 year war? Raytheon, Boeing, these groups made out really, really well. Because they ended up getting those funds, they, people basically invented jobs for themselves. They went to Afghanistan and they became senior advisor for blank. Senior representative of this. Contractor for that. And we just threw money at it. The U.S. threw billions and billions of dollars without any accountability, without any follow-up, without any checking, and one can argue that that may be by design. But it built an ongoing problem of corruption. Some elites in Kabul, some Afghan elites and our allies may have benefited from this money, but the vast majority of the benefit came back to Americans themselves. So this is the way in which American imperialism and American capitalism work hand in hand with one another. The taxpayers are paying billions of dollars as the military budget expands and expands and expands, right? The defense budget is constantly growing. And all that money is ended up going into the hands of these private military contractors and advisors. In other words, the United States replicated the exact same problems that led to the revolution in the first place back in the 1970s. This ongoing endemic system of corruption, a government that was fueled by foreign aid, an economy that only served the elites, and everybody else getting screwed. So is it any wonder that the Taliban were able to come back? The Taliban are a product of that corruption, as horrific as they are, the one thing they know what to do is to orient themselves as anti-corruption. A long con, a grift, a smart bomb.
8: Iraq in the hard place, USA and Taliban Campaign for funds drawn, flag waving, mush on War dogs throwing money, stripping countries up in arms as a business The original virtual signal, think about the women they pillage, Think about the children, meanwhile they don't give a shit They murder civilians, don't even see them as people All painted as villains, contractors making killings Made a decision made up positions imperialism they say the war is winnable but privately they skeptical thinking of more lies just to cover up the next result it's not just one president's fault it's the expected cost look at the afghan papers and pentagon reports preaching about the greater good with winning spoils pulling troops but the robots still compute the term oil
2: Military contracting or the privatization of the military certainly happened before 9-11 had been going for years. The U.S., like many things when it comes to making money, were world leaders, depending on your point of view. There was certainly outsourcing of various services, but what 9-11 did was it turbocharged those industries. And that was particularly coming from Donald Rumsfeld, who was the then defense secretary in 2001, and obviously the Bush administration, which was very... The best way, to polite way to put it, would be pro-capitalist or a believer that a lot of previously held government services should be run by private corporations. The Bush administration did, of course, with the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, invasion of Iraq 2003, various other conflicts, and I might add, this is not just a Republican issue. It's continued under Obama, into Trump, and it's continuing under Biden. So although, yes, the Bush administration, of course, is Republican and more right wing, than say Obama, even though Obama during his election campaign talked about ending the massive waste and all the corruption, nothing changed, nothing changed, which is I think very much what you could say about Obama in general, but that's a whole separate conversation. So I think overall there is a belief in many elements of the US elites on the so-called Republican or Democratic side that. The private industry should run these things because the theory is it's done more efficiently or therefore that it sort of somehow saves money. But the truth is what you saw after 9-11 was a massive reduction in transparency and increasing corruption that became most infamous with companies like Blackwater, the infamous private military contractor that operated in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. In 2007, a Blackwater convoy opened fire on civilians in Nisur Square, central Baghdad. It was indiscriminate, killing 17 and wounding 18 others. The secret files record a US patrol stumbling upon the carnage. Halliburton, which had a connection to then Vice President Dick Cheney, did a lot of the work in Iraq and Afghanistan. And some of this work is not necessarily military. It might be literally changing sheets. It might be providing food to troops. It might be a range of things like that. Blackwater, of course, are a military contractor who definitely did course carnage across much of the Middle East and frankly still exists to this day although it's now under a different name and the amount of money that was spent by the U.S. government on these services in the last 20 years the short answer is no one knows. It is in
7: the hundreds of billions of dollars. They put the issue right out there on the table for everybody to see and they're doing good work. We're going to watch we're going to make sure that as we spend the money in Iraq that it's spent well it's spent wisely and uh uh, their investigation will lay the facts out for everybody to see. And if there's an overcharge, like we think there is, we expect that money to be repaid. Many of these corporations
2: made a killing, often literally, by providing services that the government didn't want to do. And the reason I say that is for some services, particularly in the military area, they're outsourced because the government doesn't want to do it itself. So it removes one level of accountability.
0: But where did all of this money go? The Afghans certainly don't have it. 90% of the people in Afghanistan live on less than $2 a day. The fact is, most of this money went back to the US. How? Through defence companies and contractors. You see, America basically outsourced the Afghan war. They were funding it, but most of the work was being done by private companies. American private companies. They did everything in Afghanistan. They supplied vehicles, they supplied aircraft, weapons, ammunition. They trained Afghan soldiers and they did not do this for free. They were paid for all of this. Think of it as a revolving door. US government made the payments, but the money never left America. It was transferred to US companies. The numbers support this. Let's look at the top five military contractors. Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing and Northrop Grumman. Between 2001 and 2021, these companies got $2.02 trillion in public funding. $2.02 trillion. Let's go back to September 18th, 2001. Just seven days after 9-11. Assume you bought $10,000 worth of stock from America's top five military contractors. $10,000 in 2001. Do you know how much those stocks are worth today? Almost 100000 $100,000.
2: As we've seen in virtually every war, arguably since World War II, the U.S. has not won a sizable war for 70 years. That's the truth of the matter. Vietnam was lost, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, every single war the U.S. has fought, they've lost. Now, yes, one could argue that the 991 Gulf War the U.S. won, that's true. But militarily, again, it was an incredibly short war with no insurgency. So the u.s is known for failing at wars but loves keep on fighting new wars to justify new defense budgets and larger defense budgets the u.s defense budget in after 9 11 of course massively expanded i don't think as some people say that the war was fought simply to benefit military contractors i don't think that's true there's no evidence for that it was solely fought for that reason There were certainly people in the Bush administration who benefited and their friends and mates in the Republican Party who were happy to make heaps and heaps of money from those contracts. But the war wasn't fought simply for that reason, nor for that matter was Iraq fought solely for oil. Oil was a factor, to be sure, but it wasn't fought solely for that reason alone. It's not true. One of the things that has not been discussed enough is that for a number of years after the Taliban were overthrown, The U.S. didn't have an enemy to fight. There was no one there. The Taliban simply had melted away. They'd mostly accepted defeat. They had either gone home or gone to Pakistan. And the U.S. had to find enemies. They needed someone to fight. There was a massive budget, a massive military, insane numbers of U.S. and foreign forces there. What are they going to do? So what happened was they essentially were asking their Afghan allies to tell us who are the Taliban. Tell us who are the terrorists. And this guy would say, it's that guy. It's that guy. It's that guy. It literally was like that. To the point where in much of rural Afghanistan for years, lots of families were broken up because person X or person Y was sent to Guantanamo or Bagram.
7: Over the course of nearly a decade, two US presidents have talked about closing it. But the razor wire world of orange jumpsuits and legal limbo remained. As concerns grew about detainee treatment, the world was told the same thing.
4: The detainees are not choir boys. They are believed to be determined killers. These people are terrorists. They're terrorists. That's the only thing I can say, they're terrorists.
7: In fact, many were likely innocent of any crime, swept off the Afghan battlefield and handed over to US forces in exchange for bounties.
2: And this is what happened between 2001 and about 2004 and five, And this of course, unsurprisingly led to a resurgence of the taliban the taliban started to regroup there was a massive anger towards the u.s and other forces the british and australians as well and some europeans and unsurprisingly the u.s defense budget had to keep going up because there actually now was an insurgency to fight there was no real question about what that insurgency was and why it was happening and why the u.s and others had caused it it was simply the argument that said well, there's terrorists and we have to fight them. And the truth is that much of the American media, with some exceptions, were 110% happy to go along with that. They supported the war, they believed in the war, they defended the war, they went to Afghanistan often doing ed-beds with US forces, they came back parroting US military propaganda. That was the case, I would argue, for most of the last 20 years. To call the war in Afghanistan a capitalist grift, I think, is accurate, but I would say it's it's more than that. It's the whole much of the post 9 eleven war on terror infrastructure the u s government themselves have spent at least eight trillion dollars. This is across all u s military interventions in the last 20 years this, These figures come from brown university's cost of war project and that 's an underestimate that's not that's just some of the money that's been spent and again i don 't think All the wars iraq afghanistan libya syria are fought solely for people to make money i don't think that's the sole reason these wars are happening but they are central to how they're fought i do think the fact that you have private enterprise aiming to make an absolute killing in all of these countries undeniably makes those wars worse this one interesting point five of the top u.s military contractors in the last 20 years. They are Boeing, Rayathon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. And it's important to note that all those companies' profits have gone through the roof. They're doing very, very well. They were very excited, both publicly and privately, when Trump was elected in 2016 with the thought that he was going to launch new wars. I'm not quite sure that worked out how they planned, but nonetheless, the reason I mention them is not to say. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were caused just because of them? No. But I'm saying that when one argues the wars have been a disaster, disaster for whom? And who have they benefited? They've benefited a lot of these corporations, many of whom have incredibly effective lobbying arms that do do very effective work, both for Republicans and Democrats. They have not had any impact on their profits. In fact, their profits are going up. There are countless shadow wars going on. I mean, when Biden talks about, for example, in the last few months, you have to focus more on the homeland and other threats. Other threats, he claims, are Russia, particularly China, of course, is the new bogeyman. And it's an Australian. this is a very relevant issue because Australia is much closer to China than the US is. Rest assured, the whole think tank world and many military contractors are salivating over the idea of an endless new Cold War with China. In other words, the war on terror simply shifts region or shifts area or shifts focus. It doesn't end. It never ends. 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 It never ends.
1: Foreign intervention, and especially US intervention, has, I think, set a path for Afghanistan that unfortunately means that they will never see peace. We anticipated that the withdrawal, just due to the lack of proper planning, due to the lack of just proper foresight of what's going to happen once the U.S. completely withdraws, you know, the worst did happen. Uh, The Taliban quickly took over the country. And with that came the Taliban rule that I think everyone is familiar with. The public beatings of, of whipping folks, doesn't matter who you are, man, woman, or child. You know, we had reports of the Taliban beginning to take note of homes that are of religious and ethnic minorities, something that is very much a chilling, reminiscent thing of the Taliban's past. We have seen the Taliban essentially threaten folks. You know, people wake up in the morning and report people that are disappearing, never to be seen again. These are things that we're hearing directly from family. Um, I have family that still live in Kabul to this day. They're scared. They're absolutely scared for their lives.
0: Let's talk about the Taliban
2: takeover of Afghanistan. In a matter of just weeks,
0: 20 years of history have been reversed at a speed no one predicted.
6: Wow. I mean, to see the Taliban, and these are actually fighting Taliban, they're not Taliban leadership. They're in the presidential palace, sitting in the president's desk. These are amazing scenes. We are
0: coming on the air with breaking news from Afghanistan, an explosion at the Kabul airport where thousands of people are still attempting to evacuate the country. The Pentagon confirms the blast, no word yet on injuries. The blast coming just hours after a security alert from the U.S. State Department, warning an attack could be imminent and telling Americans to stay away from the airport.
5: I was struck by the fact that the U.S.'s withdrawal is now going to be categorized not only by the chaos of the airport, but by one final drone strike that killed children and families.
0: In one of the final acts of its 20 year war in Afghanistan, the United States fired a missile from a drone at a car in Kabul. It was parked in the courtyard of a home and the explosion killed 10 people, including 43 year old Zamarai Ahmadi and seven children, according to his family.
5: We're listening to Joe Biden's speech. I'm struck by his language of this is the end of the forever war.
7: Last night in Kabul, The United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history.
5: But what he means is this is the end to U.S. troops in Afghanistan, not U.S. drone warfare in Afghanistan. That will, of course, continue. The drone warfare that ends up really kind of shaping the 20-year experience of Afghans is one of horrific civilian casualty in which Afghan lives are deemed less important to the larger stated objective of carrying out retribution against terrorists, degrading terrorist camps, the fight against global terrorism. But in reality, one can argue that drone warfare has probably contributed more to the growth of terrorism than any other measure we've taken every afghan living in a rural village has civilian family members that have been murdered or killed by drone warfare children who are traumatized by blue skies who say that they prefer gray skies because at least then they, the drones don't come out what happens to a rural village that has spent 20 years losing family members to drone warfare they're unwilling to look at the taliban as their chief enemies anymore yeah maybe they don't like the taliban maybe they are not favorable towards the taliban rule but they're not gonna put up a fight when the Taliban shows up to their village because at the very least, the Taliban is a familiar enemy. The drone is an unfamiliar enemy. If you're droning the villages and the countryside of Afghanistan, don't be surprised when that countryside abdicates very quickly to the Taliban because the Taliban will offer an alternative, no more drones. It will offer an alternative, a false alternative, right? The Taliban themselves are carrying out horrific attacks. But that's the reality is that the drone warfare had played a massive role in the reason why Afghanistan fell so quickly to the Taliban. If I had to write a history of the past 20 years as an explanation of why the Taliban were able to show back up and basically take over back to square one, it's a two-pronged issue. The corruption fostered by the US system and drone warfare.
1: I have my cousin sending me videos at night where you can hear gunshots right by his home you can he see some sort of like firing in the sky, like just lightening up. He doesn't know what it is, he doesn't know who it's being pointed to, but he hears and he sends me these recordings. Food is apparently becoming more of an issue. And so my uncle the other day told my mom like, yeah, like we're, we're sort of starting to rationing out food because we don't know when we're gonna be able to find more. And so, uh, and this is Kabul, this is the the capital where Historically has been, you know, a little bit more wealthier. Historically has been uh, more resourceful, and this is there that they're starting to rationing their food to make sure that they have enough to eat. And this is, you know, not just my family. This is everyone across Kabul. Our distant family members tried to cross the border into Pakistan last week, and they went from Kabul to Spin Boldak, which is one of the border crossings in the south near Kandahar. And they were relentlessly beaten by the Taliban. And so they gave up and went back to Kabul. This is the type of reality that we're seeing inside of Afghanistan that is not reported on by the media. They've lost their attention to it. But these are the things that we hear on a constant basis from our family members back home, telling us, look, this is the latest that the Taliban did. This is the latest that we're dealing with and what we're trying to do to survive. And so it's really just I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to reconcile with that when the United States has essentially completely wiped their hands clean and just doesn't care anymore.
8: They bombed a car in a courtyard in Kabul. They killed seven children and a father. The man targeted would give out food and water. They claimed he had explosives in his cargo compartment. He was innocent. And this is just one example. What if this was on US soil? You? Can you imagine? The missile that killed the again. Seven children is literally called Hellfire. That's the world we live in. You got no money your permission, and you can't leave. Hundreds of billions being made, but not his family. Hard working dad like you, he drove a Camry. They called it a righteous strike and wiped their hands clean. And even when the truth came out by an expose, a tragic mistake was the best they could say. And if it ain't a drone aimed at your home, it's your neighbor's rifle. All Public whipping or someone paid to strike you. Hired guns with bigger armies than entire nations. Private corporations not fighting off invasions. Mighty long staying, and they still find the landmines from the Bush administration. It's a great big money making, bloody brazen triangle of corrupt hatred running trains to graveyards. This is nothing sacred. A cluster f- would be an understatement. Suffocation can face it nation in hell with nobody accountable everybody coming and gunning playing it fast and loose disaster parroting all the propaganda too even in the capital they ration food they killed osama but it wasn't enough perpetual war forever under a clutch already foreshadowing what might be coming up what's the next country to get struck
4: Okay, there you have it. That was Grifter's Paradise, capitalism's destruction of Afghanistan. Once again, I'm Manny Faces. And as always, on behalf of our entire team, we thank you for listening. For more on this episode, as well as bonus content and new episodes being delivered straight to your inbox, subscribe for free to our newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review on whatever app you might be listening to us on. And for more information about us in general, visit usnewsbeat.com. You can check out more from our guest, Dr. Ali Olomi, on Twitter, at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. And check out his podcast, Head on History, at patreon.com slash history. Alima Wali can be found on Twitter at underscore H-A-L-E-M-A-W. And as I mentioned earlier, she's co-founded several associated nonprofit groups, including Afghans for a Better Tomorrow at WeAreAfghans.org, Afghan Diaspora for Equality and Progress, which can be found at ADEProgress.org, and Shia Racial Justice Coalition, which you can learn more about at RJC.org. Check out Anthony Loewenstein's articles, books, films, and other projects at AnthonyLoewenstein.com, including Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. Follow him on Twitter at A-N-T Loewenstein. You can find more incredible songs and verses from our artist-in-residence, hip-hop maestro Silent Night, at SilentNight.BandCamp.com. That's night like the chess piece. And be sure to tweet him at SilentNighter. Silent K-N-I-G-H-T-T-E-R. Please be sure to check out Newsbeat's parent company, HubSpot Diamond Partner Agency, Mori Creative Studios at moricreative.com and learn more about all the ways they're helping purpose-driven businesses and organizations across diverse industries grow for good. And in conjunction with Mori Creative, Newsbeat is produced by the award-winning podcast production and consulting firm Manny Faces Media at manyfacesmedia.com. And once again, I'm Manny Faces. Follow us on social at US Newsbeat and follow me on Twitter at Manny Faces or Instagram at Manny Faces Official. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon. Peace.